This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Eye on Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now, your host, Jessica Clement. Welcome to Eye on Washington. I am your host, Jessica Clement. I am joined today by John Hatton, Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, commonly known as NARF. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Really great to have you here, John. Thank you for joining me for the inaugural episode of Eye on Washington. Before we talk about all the great things NARF is working on, let me take a few seconds to introduce myself and the show to our audience. A lobbyist by trade, and despite what some people think, it is not a dirty word, I spent over 15 years advocating for the federal community, most recently at NARF. I'm currently the vice president for advocacy at the American Society of Travel Advisors. Let me just take a second to make a plug for using a travel advisor for your next vacation. But when Federal News Network offered me the opportunity to be a voice for the federal community, I could not say no. As such, Ion Washington will take a look at federal employee and retiree policy initiatives in, you guessed it, Washington. We'll take a look at the proposals Congress, the administration, and individual agencies are considering and which ones have a possibility to become reality. So, John, let's dive in. I've been out of the game for almost two years. <laughs> what do you think is the most important issue facing the federal community today? Well, the most recent issue is that uh, President Biden issued his alternative pay plan, which authorizes a 4.7 percent across the board pay increase and a an average uh, 0.5% increase in locality pay. So that's good news uh, for federal employees across the board, across the nation, uh, and also in Washington, D.C. I think, though, there's probably some anxiety about potential return-to-work plans. And Office of Management and Budget put out a memo asking agencies to increase in-person work and come up with new plans. Uh, Chief of Staff of the White House, Jeffrey Zients, sent an email in August kind of reiterating that a clear signal that they want more people coming back to work. So I think for federal employees going into September, October, when these things may change, they may certainly appreciate that pay raise, but be anxious about, you know, more commuting uh, time away from home. Certainly the federal government is not alone in wanting to get employees back to work. This is a conversation that is taking place in businesses and offices across the country. Let's Talk about the pay raise a little bit longer because, sure. you know, I could personally use a refresher on how these <laughs> things go. So the president submitted his budget request in February. It's normally February. Did he actually do that this year? Was oh, it a little late? Test me on that. Uh, I think March, March or it could have been later. I think it was March this year. Great. So he puts forth a, a budget. Congress laughs and says we're going to do whatever we want anyway. So the alternative pay plan came out at the end of August. Right. So now what happens? Biden is saying, you know, 4.7 across the board. I do the grocery shopping in my household, and I can tell you I am acutely feeling the inflation there, I think. But we also have a political reality that, you know, that is a a hefty raise to some. So where do we go? Like, what's next? So if Congress doesn't do anything, if they don't pass a law changing this, this will basically go into effect. This is the the first kind of official formal signal. You know, there's an executive order that needs to happen in December to kind of, I guess, put this into place. But once this uh, pay plan is put out there, there's not really another opportunity to reverse it. So this is what's there. 
there was one time when I think when Trump was in office where the budget, the pay plan was different for them from the budget, but there's no second bite at the apple on this. Uh, there may be a little bit second bite on the apple on the locality pay. But this is all dependent on Congress not doing something in the appropriations process. They still have to fund the government uh, for the next upcoming fiscal year. That would also apply to the calendar year raise next year in 2024. So, you know, we may get into talking about what's going on with government funding. Is there going to be a government shutdown and all of that? So this could potentially be part of that discussion. I think it's unlikely. There haven't been signals from Congress that they're trying to roll this back. Um, It hasn't been in, you know, the House Financial Services Appropriations Bill. It hasn't been in the Senate Financial Services uh, and and General Government Appropriations Bill. So I think it looks pretty good, uh, but we never know. We can't uh, count on Congress necessarily to do the right thing. I mean, I think we could spend the entire show talking about the possibility of a shutdown, and I'm sure we will talk about it if time allows. So I have not been following the appropriations process as closely as I used to um, because my job and the things I care about are very different than government funding. So House passed – committee passed several appropriations bills, right? Yeah, so the House Appropriations Committee passed 10 of the 12 bills out of committee. They passed uh, one bill from the House floor, uh, the Milcon VA bill, I believe. Uh, The Senate has passed all 12 of 12 bills um, out of the the committee on a bipartisan basis. But we only have about a month left uh, Mm -hmm. until they need to meet the deadline. I think that's pretty tight to get all those bills passed. You know, I think things look good in the Senate. There's indications they may take up little mini buses, so adding some of those appropriations bills together and passing them. And that's bipartisan. And that's pursuant to the budget caps that were passed earlier in this year. Now, on the House side, you know, they had agreed to and passed uh, the budget caps uh, deal that raised the debt limit. But since then, the House Freedom Caucus has still been upset about it, and they still want to go back to those uh, fiscal year 22 levels of spending. And so they're putting pressure on their leadership to have passed those appropriations bills out of the House committee, at least, and potentially through the House floor at those lower levels that go back on that deal that was reached with the White House and the Senate. So something needs to break there in terms of are they going to come to agreement with the Senate, go back to those spending caps deals? You know, is the House Freedom Caucus going to put pressure on Speaker McCarthy to the extent that his speakership is at threat? And so I think the uncertainty going into October is really all centered around the House and the politics of the House Republican Caucus. A lot to unpack (laughs) there. Um, It wouldn't be a day in Washington if somebody wasn't upset about some policy that both sides of the aisle and the White House had already agreed on. But again, that that could be a longer discussion. So FSGG, which is the appropriations bill where the pay raise would reside, both of them are silent. Correct. So that sets the stage for the White House's alternative pay plan to go into effect. I'm going to tap way back into my memory bank here on the three-year pay freeze that federal Mm -hmm. employees endured. And I remember at the time having this conversation with appropriations staffers who thought, because we had never been in a situation where – Pay was frozen for federal employees, at least not those staffers and myself had not been in that situation. And there was a commonly held belief at the time that if appropriations was silent, pay was frozen. Right. And we were like, "Mm, that's not really how that works. But if you want to think that, that's totally fine. But that was one of the things we faced back in 2009, 2010, when um, pay was frozen. 
because there is so much consternation in Congress these days, our politics is, is very fraught. Do you see a scenario in which there are appropriators who think that is the case, that, okay, these bills are silent, so this is going to be our sly way of making sure federal employees do not get a pay raise? I don't think so. I mean, if they've got good enough staff and the appropriation staff in Congress is pretty good uh, and understands kind of where these things, you know, what the implications of these laws are and they need to do it in the budgeting in terms of how much funding agencies are getting for their salary and expense accounts. But, you know, I think I've certainly heard from a lot of NARF members and I'm sure, you know, a lot of listeners here, um, you know, what happens if there's a CR? You know, does that mean – it goes through. Do you need the full appropriations bills? And now, even if there's a CR, uh, that pay raise will go into effect. So, I think keeping it silent is probably the best strategy right now. There's times in the past where uh, certainly NARF, um, whether it was me there or you there or us together or whatever, when we wanted to see them explicitly support it. But in this current environment, I think silent is the best we can hope for. So, we're happy to see Congress just ignore it and let the president's pay raise go ahead. I fully agree with that, given, you know, just the environment on Capitol Hill these days. Let's talk a little bit about the possibility of a shutdown. Sure. Right. You and I read the same publications every morning. You get to work. First thing you do is you read your newsletters. Right. And throughout the August recess, there's not always a lot of things to talk about. So those newsletters focus heavy on what's going to happen in September, what's going to happen in September. And... As I sit here today, I think my money is on a government shutdown, yeah. acknowledging that while there is not a lot of time before the start of the fiscal year, in congressional terms, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks is almost a lifetime, right? Yeah. So acknowledging that we do have a little bit of wiggle room between now and when the fiscal year starts, how are you preparing at NARF for what happens on September 30th? How are you preparing the NARF members for the possibility of a shutdown? And also, what do you think those possibilities are? (laughs) So I think reasonable minds can have different opinions on that. I know internally at NARF, different people have different opinions about the likelihood of a shutdown. Different people in Congress have different opinions about the likelihood of a shutdown. I am slightly optimistic that we won't have one, given the strength, the bipartisan strength of the Senate bills and given that we still have the budget deal in place. How we get there and how the House gets there without threatening Speaker McCarthy's speakership is a different story. And so I think that's the curveball here. That's the hot-button issue. Like, how does McCarthy prevent a shutdown without losing his speakership due to revolt from the House Freedom Caucus? And I don't know. So if that can get resolved, maybe we don't have a shutdown. In terms of what we're doing, what people should be doing, certainly we're we're starting to advocate no shutdown, beat the drum, make sure – you know, the public understands the implications of this, that this is a complete waste of taxpayer money. You're going to send people home to not work and pay them for it. It does um, not save <laughs> any money. It doesn't it save any money. billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. And you're going to have national parks shut down. You're going to have people who plan vacations for months, years, you know, having those vacations ruined. Businesses that rely on people going to those national parks or on other federal services uh, being impacted. And there's never been a case where a government shutdown has, has occurred and the person, you know, 
trying to get something from that shutdown has actually won. It's always been a complete waste of money for no actual positive outcome for the person trying to leverage it. You and I have worked together for a very long time. It is one of the reasons, you know, I wanted you here for this inaugural episode. And I don't think it would be the first time in our time working together that you were optimistic about something (laughs) and I was not at all. But we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about telework, return to work policies, hear more about what NARF is working on policy-wise. You are listening to Ion Washington on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Ion Washington on Federal News Network. I am your host, Jessica Clement, and I am here today with John Hatton, Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs at NARF. Okay. We've covered the pay raise. Yep. Covered the possible shutdown. Yep. Information on the shutdown, which will change daily until mm-hmm. September 30th. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about return to work, which you had also mentioned yep. in our first segment. Businesses across the country are having this conversation, right? Yep. My organization is having it. Everybody's having it, trying to find that right balance between the collegiality that you experience when you see people face to face versus wanting to be flexible to keep employee morale high. The federal government, I don't think, is unique in struggling with this debate, but the federal government is unique in the sense that those employees are paid by taxpayers and people have a lot of opinions about federal employees going into the office. Now, I'm a firm believer in the fact that you shouldn't have to physically see someone to know that they're working. I see this as a management issue, not necessarily a productivity one. But tell me a little bit about the debate that's happening within the administration and Congress right now about bringing federal employees back to the office. Yeah. Well, so first of all, um, House Oversight Committee has been really pushing for return to work. So there's that political pressure, particularly from the Republican side of the aisle in Congress on this. Then when you look at the fact that the chief of staff of the White House kind of got involved and kind of put his thumb on the scale, um, it wouldn't surprise me if the Biden administration sees this as a political concern uh, and more so than just a management productivity concern. Um, that they're dealing with the perception from Americans that if people are in the office, they may not be working. And I think for people who do work in offices or had work in offices and work remotely and do Zooms and, and know that they can be just as productive at home and then out at the office, you know, that's a tough pill to swallow that these decisions might be being made on a political basis and not based on how well you can do your job. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think there are benefits to in-person work, collegiality that you mentioned you know, fostering that workplace culture. And every single business is dealing with this, right? And so it's not an easy decision, but you want it to be based on what's the best for productivity, for the way the agency works, for workplace culture, and taking into account that, you know, there may be some real cost to employees uh, to come into the office every day for commuting, uh, for time constraint, for loss of time in that sense, when, you know, they've proven over the course of a long pandemic that they can do the job at home. So, you know, it's it's certainly a pros and cons and difficult conversation. And I think every time a citizen can't get a hold of someone at the Social Security Administration or can't get a hold of someone at the IRS, these customer service based agencies, they're going to go screaming to their members of Congress that they, you know, didn't get a call back or haven't gotten a call back yet. And that is going to fuel this sort of mentality when, you know, 
that person may have been in a meeting or <laughs> in the bathroom. Just day-to-day things that have absolutely nothing to do with where you do your job. Do you see this playing out, coming to a conclusion of some kind anytime soon? I think given the push to have these plans in place in September or October, I, I think mm-hmm. we'll see some more certainty. Beyond that, I mean, no, because I think this debate is still playing out across the country with businesses. You know, there could be a new administration within a couple of years, and that might have a different, a completely different idea on this. Um, and to the extent this is done at an agency by agency level, it could depend on who the agency head is that's appointed and what they think. And so I think that's one of the frustrating things, too, is how do you provide some certainty to people over a longer period of time rather than this having going back and forth uh, depending on who's in office and who's in charge? Stay tuned, I guess, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, if if there can be some consensus on this, that would help. But I, I think for people who, you know, would be afraid of a consensus that meant working in the office every single day, mm-hmm. then maybe – you know, in the meantime, having some hybrid approach or, or some more uh, remote work is better. Thanks. I think the federal government is going to continue to struggle with this the way all businesses are. I don't think there's any one right answer or any one good answer. Um, and it's something we've been talking about for three years, yep. right? And I wish them luck. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Let's talk a little bit more about the policy initiatives NARF is working on. If I remember reading correctly, as I look back fondly of the things that I worked on (laughs) when I was there, you guys saw some good traction at the end of last Congress on the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. My own personal nod to Mike Causey, who loved talking about these (laughs) issues, right? I could not escape a Your Turn with Mike Causey episode without talking about GPO and WEP. Evil twins, the, I think he called them. The evil <laughs> twins. We yeah. can talk about Diet Cola, too, yeah. if you want before we leave. <laughs> Where are we? Will federal retirees affected by these two provisions ever see any relief? Tell us where we are first, and then yeah. we can talk about that. So where we are is the bill to repeal Weapon GPO now has 289 co-sponsors in the House. Um, the co-sponsor of that bill for years lost his re-election bid last year. So who's right. the sponsor of that bill now? Uh, Garrett Graves from Louisiana. Okay. And so, yeah, the previous sponsor was Rodney Davis from Illinois. He was a great supporter of this. Graves has done a great job, though, too. And I think groups like NARF, our allies in Congress, our allies outside of Congress uh, that are also impacted by this issue, are really building on the momentum that we had last Congress where we got above 290 and utilize this House consensus calendar rule, which forces either a vote on the House floor or committee action. And so last year, for the first time ever, the House Ways and Means Committee took up the bill and advanced that committee. Now, the bad news was they did that to avoid a floor vote on the bill, but it still raised the profile of it. And we brought that progress that we made from last Congress into this Congress, uh, and we've reached a higher co-sponsor number earlier in the Congress. So we're at 289 right now, hoping to get that one more. Garrett Graves has said that he's not going to use that consensus calendar motion right away. He wants to hold on to it, try to talk with ways and means. So he's confident he's going to get the 290. I think we can do it. I think he's confident. We're confident. There's one more person. There's a few people uh, out there that should be able to sign on. I'd be surprised if we don't get one more person in the next month or so. Right. But that doesn't mean he's going to file the motion to get it. Uh, on the consensus calendar, which would force that floor vote or committee action. That's because it's trying to work with ways and means. 
on some type of bill that could actually pass into law. Now, that's probably not full repeal. That may be something closer to uh, Neal's bill or the former Brady bill, which uh, I believe Jody Arrington is planning to reintroduce this month, something that provides some relief for WEP but doesn't solve the whole problem. So I was just going to bring that up. There's also new leadership on the House Ways and Means Committee, right? right? So Ways and Means brought this bill up last Congress, which was good for publicity, bad for the possibility of it getting to the House floor. With new leadership on Ways and Means, with Kevin Brady's departure from Congress, what sort of conversations are you having with that staff? Is it the same? Is it different with a new committee chairman? Yeah, the the committee chairman is aware that this is an issue that is important to a lot of people across the country. And it tends to be, obviously, federal retirees that are impacted under CSRS, uh, but then concentrated in certain states where those state and local government employees are affected. Uh, But the committee chair is Jason Smith from Missouri. There are people in Missouri that are are, impacted by this. So they're aware. The conversations are still similar. They want to try to get something done. They're very similar kind of compromise constructs from the Republican side and Democratic side on the web piece of this, but they're just off by a little bit, and they haven't been able to bridge that gap. Um, and I think there's two kind of principles um, that neither side is budging on. The Democratic side, they seem to not want anybody ever in the future to have any reduction in benefit. And by going to a new formula at some point in the future, you may get that for somebody Some who has, people, right? Like right. It's somebody a very who has small like two percentage. years of non-covered work would be worse off. And so it's okay. like- a lot of the savings on the back end of some of these bills on the Republican side is by some people, like a larger amount of people having a very small reduction in their benefit. These are people that are like 20 years old today. So that's kind of the holdup on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, you know, it needs to be cost neutral for 75 years. The Democratic bill isn't. Uh, and they want to phase in that kind of newer formula at some point. So. Yeah. There hasn't been kind of a meeting of the minds, even though they both have the same, very similar constructs of those two bills. I think as Congress faces this rush towards appropriations, right, is the end of the fiscal year is very near. You have other issues in Congress with a hard deadline. You have FAA reauthorization with the September 30th deadline. You have the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act which usually historically has preceded appropriations, and that keeps getting bumped back because of these big ticket issues. And, you know, we're not even in the election year, but we already have debates going on. So politics plays a big role in all these things. Are you struggling to get attention towards these issues because of all the other big ticket items? Or are the folks on Ways and Means, because this is what they do, and they're the Committee of Jurisdiction, like, those conversations are continuing despite these, the the bigger issues at play here. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, obviously, the bigger ticket items will take up the space for debate, you know, on the House floor mm-hmm. and kind of publicly. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean the kind of the behind the scenes conversations, you know, between our members and members of Congress, um, between different groups, and can cannot still go on and make progress on these. And so I think that's where we're seeing. So it's not really at that point where. It's going to get the high-level publicity in part because of some of these other issues. I think if this is going to pass, you know, may, may or may not pass on its own, I think it's much more likely it's something – if there's some type of deal, it could be wrapped up in some larger deal. I, I think in the ways and means space, um, what we've heard – and typically they've done tax extender packages at the end of the year. 
um, there's very little conversation about a realistic deal going forward between Democrats and Republicans on that, which is bad news for us if we wanted to add something to a tax extenders package. That didn't happen at the end of the last year. We're, you know, if we were hoping um, to add something to that, it, I don't see it happening this year based on conversations. So I, I think that kind of larger ticket item question kind of plays into it in terms of what's the vehicle for this to pass if it doesn't pass like standalone and where is its floor time, um, particularly in the Senate. And NARF had its virtual fly-in in June, right? Yeah. Is this – you? the members obviously took this issue to their legislators, right? right? Yes. Um, what sort of feedback did they get? Did, it, did they get considerable pushback from anyone? Yeah. I think – I didn't hear too many – and there's a lot of people co-sponsoring of the mm-hmm. bill. Yeah. So 289 is nothing to A lot of people is, it's simply saying thank you for co-sponsoring mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, typically what we hear back from offices is the cost of the bill, right? The, the reason this isn't passed yet despite – it having a large amount of members of Congress on board for the, some type of solution is that it would cost a lot of money. It costs hundreds of billions of dollars to repeal weapon GPO. Um, if you don't offset that with some other cost savings, that's going to impact the solvency of the, uh, the Social Security Trust Fund. Obviously, no one really wants the Social Security Trust Fund to go insolvent. And so there's the, there's the larger kind of budgetary issues that are the, are the real impediment to that. So when people aren't signing on, it's typically because of that um, as the main reason. Well, that was a lot to digest. <laughs> we have about a minute left. I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to tell our audience anything you want them to know about NARV, other stuff you guys are working on. Go. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, we're really just here um, for a couple things. But on the advocacy side, we've been talking about legislative issues to try to look out for the interests of all federal employees and retirees. Uh, and really have that perspective that reaches across the government, all agencies, all branches, all types of workers, uh, and make sure that these decisions being made on a government-wide basis by the administration, by Congress, uh, you know, are taking into account the concerns and interests of federal employees and retirees. Great. I can't believe how fast the last 30 <laughs> minutes have gone. Um, it was It was great to see you again. Great to have you here on the inaugural episode of Eye on Washington. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be the first guest. <laughs> that was John Hatton, Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs at NARF. I am your host, Jessica Clement, and you've been listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.